I'd invite you to open up to our scripture passage today, and uh, it's short. It's Exodus 20, verse 16, Exodus 20, 16. Uh, so if you've been with us for a little while, um, we've been going through the book of Exodus in kind of three mini-series, uh, although they don't feel that many since it's a year that we've been in the book. And uh, we are in the second part of that called the gift of the law, where we're looking at God's law. And what I want you to remember is that God's law isn't a checklist of how God grades you for how much he's going to like you, uh, but it is his blueprint for his beautiful community that he is building in Christ. And so as we look at these commands, uh, these are God's blueprints for what his community should look like. And so with that in mind, uh, let's read our passage. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Read it once more. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through Christ. We pray that your law here for your redeemed people would be a light and a delight to us as we are reminded what your community looks like. And Father, we fall short. We pray that you would, through the power of your spirit, convict us of those areas and show us Christ and remind us of your spirit that you have given us that enables us to look more like Christ. And so we pray that you would do that here through the power of your word. Transform us from the inside out to look more like Jesus, we pray. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, earlier this uh, year, I read, it was actually a series of articles uh, about a reporter who investigated these growing number of websites that specialize in destroying someone's reputation. Uh, and maybe you've seen them out there. Uh, maybe even you've uh, found yourself or your own name on one of these sites. Uh, the reporter, as he was investigating this, he decided to upload a post with his own name uh, and a picture of him to one of these sites as he was investigating how this all worked. And so he uploaded it, and the title of his post was Aaron Krolik, New York, is an unqualified loser. And he uploaded it to this one site, and within a matter of weeks, he saw that post get duplicated with subtle changes to all kinds of other sites. So some would say Aaron Krolik is an absolute loser, putting loser in all caps, uh, on sites like usacheaters.com, or worstgolddiggers.com, or predatoralert.us. And soon what he discovered, after just this one post, when you searched his name, one of the first results in Google was Aaron Krolik is a loser. And if the reporter tried to remove his name from any of these sites, well, it was worthless because it was just like a game of whack-a-mole. He might get it removed from one site, but it would be copied onto three other sites. And to make matters worse, many of those sites, if you wanted to get your name removed, they charged a, quote, administrative fee if you wanted to take your name off there. It was essentially extortion. Now, the reporter also noticed that as he was doing this, he started getting more and more ads popping up for these reputation management companies. And they specialize in removing your name from all of these sites. And these companies charge several hundred dollars per post. Uh, and because that post it was copied onto multiple websites, he could have easily paid more than $20,000 to try to get his name from, um, removed from all of these sites that were you know, claiming he is an absolute loser. 
And then in the investigation, as they uncovered the businesses and the, uh, the ownership of the domains and the websites, they discovered many of the people that run the you know, worstgolddiggers.com website also run these very same reputation management companies. It, it, it turns out slander is big business, okay? and it has made it only harder with the day and age that we're living in, where anyone can have their name drug through the mud. In a, a related article to this in the investigation, it, it talked about one uh, lady who had a grudge against this family. And from the grandmother all the way down to the grandkids had uploaded posts like this for every person in that family. And it was impossible to get them removed. Yeah. We're looking at the ninth commandment here, which says you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, at least when I first read this commandment, I, I think of it as pertaining to speaking in court, giving false testimony in trial. And, and certainly that is the, the, the primary focus of this command, but few of us will ever probably sit in that witness box having to give testimony under oath. But this command is no less applicable to us because it actually governs how we speak and even how we think about those around us. It applies to how you speak about your old boss, or former roommates, or a neighbor, or an ex-spouse. It applies to what you may post or share on Facebook about politicians or other public figures. As I said, we're jumping back into our, our series through the book of the Exodus, looking at the gift of the law. And what we see here, this is so crucial for a healthy community, because when a community is more about spreading lies about others than telling the truth, the entire foundation of that community erodes because no one trusts each other and everybody is polarized and divided. In some ways, it looks a lot like what we li are living in today. But Christians need to be different. Our community needs to look different than how the rest of the world speaks about each other. We need to be slow to speak ill of others. We must, in whatever we say, Speak only what we know is true, and even as we're going to see, sometimes, even if we know something is true, we should not share it with others, because we should care about what we say about our neighbors. And so what I want you to remember this morning is just this, to speak truthfully in love about others. Speak truthfully in love about others. And if it doesn't match those two qualifiers, truthfully and in love, well then, keep your mouth quiet. We shouldn't do it. So we'll look at just this two ways. First, the principle of it, and then some specific applications. One of the things that I, I've been struck as we've looked at all these commands is how many of them you can trace back to the fall with Adam and Eve, that first sin. That in that one sin, all other sins are represented in some way. It shows how it's impossible to break just one of God's commands without breaking several others at the same time, if not all of them. And so, if you remember that story, the serpent comes to Eve, and Adam is there as well, and he begins by telling what? A lie. He bears false witness about God. Did God really say that you must not eat of any tree from uh, this garden? Now, that's a lie, right? If you remember the story, God says, no, you can actually eat from any of these trees. In fact, do eat from any of them, but there's one you shouldn't eat from. But here, the serpent tells a lie that does what? It makes God look more strict than he actually is. Did, did God give you this beautiful garden just to tempt you every day of your life? You can't even touch it? Right? Like dangling it out there, but always just a little too far for you to get? 
Well, even Eve responds and says, well, no, that's not true. We, we can actually eat from any of these trees, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can't eat from that tree, but we also can't touch it. Now, even there, Eve bears false witness. She says correctly that, yes, we can't eat from it, but then she also makes God look stri more strict than he is by adding that little bit, you can't even touch it. So then the serpent responds, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Here again, another lie. And, and this one actually cuts deep, because in this one, the serpent is revealing God's motives for why he has given this rule. Do you know the real reason why God has said you can't eat from that tree? Because he likes being boss. He doesn't want anyone to threaten his monopoly on his power. He likes being the only God, and he doesn't want anyone to take that away from him. The serpent is casting doubts on God's character. And this lie sinks deep into Eve's heart, so much that now when she looks at that tree again, it says, she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And ever since that day, that lie was lodged into every one of our human hearts. Does God really love me? As the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. Does God really give me his commands because he has my best interest in mind? Or is he doing it just to toy with me? Or to hold me back? Or to keep me from being my true self? It's one of the reasons why Jesus, when he speaks of Satan in John 8, he says, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the liar and father of lies. Sin came into humanity because of a lie, that God doesn't actually care for you. He does not have your best interests at heart. And his rules are to keep you down, not to actually lead you to a better life. Now, this command is specifically talking about giving false witness against your neighbor, but we can't miss that lying started with bearing false witness against God. And actually, so many of the lies we tell, I think if you trace them back, it, it traces back to a distrust towards God. And that distrust, that lie about God is like the first domino, which then creates a chain reaction of all these other lies. And so how is it that we bear false witness against God? Well, it's when you don't trust his word to you. You think God is lying. Now, you might not put it that way, but, but that's essentially what is happening. Take just a very common example many of us struggle with. Paul writes in his well-known prayer in Ephesians 3, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is. Now, if you're one of God's people, do you doubt his love for you? Because God says he loves you. Do you doubt God's love when you're struggling to love yourself? Do you doubt his forgiveness when you've just screwed up again? And to doubt his love towards you, if you're a Christian, is to call God a liar. To say, I trust my word more than yours, God. I trust whether I'm forgiven in, in what I say more than you. It's putting your word above God's. It's to say God is a liar. Now, this command specifies false witness against your neighbor. It's actually the first time that word appears in these commandments. And in some ways, this command 
is kind of the, the human-directed version of the third command, which, if you can remember all the way back to that, when we looked at that, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And in that sermon, we looked at how God's name is tied to his reputation. And so if you're a Christian and you do anything in the name of God that is not in line with God's reputation and character, you are defaming his name. And in the same way, this command is saying that if you do or say anything about someone that does not line up with their character, you are misusing their name. You're attacking their reputation. And God cares about our reputations. Witness testimony was incredibly important back in this time. Because so many of the forms of evidence that we have today, they didn't have back then. So there's obvious things that you could think of, right? Like DNA evidence or video footage or electronic records and call logs, but all kinds of other things as well that we take for granted, like police reports. There were no police back then. Or payment records or contracts or business deals. People didn't have any cheap form of paper. So if someone was to be prosecuted for a crime, witness testimony was essential in it. And the whole justice system hung on whether or not witnesses were reliable or trustworthy or not. Witnesses held incredible power back in this day because they were essentially the best form of testimony you could get. And because of that, God puts in several protections for that holds to, to be a witness in a trial, you had to be held to a higher standard. First, it says you can't convict someone. This is in Deuteronomy. You can't convict someone based on the testimony of just one witness. The charge must be established by two or three witnesses. And then second, it says if a witness comes forward and it turns out that they're giving a false witness, they're lying about their testimony, that whatever punishment that accuser sought out and lied about, they must now suffer the same punishment. Imagine how well this would work to quell frivolous lawsuits that we see today. If you want to sue someone for $5 million in damages, well, you can do that, but guess what? If you're lying about that, you've got to pony up $5 million to them. Whatever you're asking from them, you've got to be willing to give. And it shows that you need to be convinced of the rightness of your case. It held witness testimony in high regard that this must be true. It's striking, as I went through the Bible, how much God focuses on this issue of false witness. And the thing that struck me about it is he seems to show that it is incredibly easy for us to be swayed into giving a false witness. Now, this should be humbling for all of us because every one of you here, you want to think you're impartial and you would do the right thing if you were called on, right? And you would stand up for truth. But I think Scripture shows us Our hearts are so twisted that it is very easy for us to slant the truth when we speak, to be swayed by all kinds of other things besides what is true when we give a testimony. So let's look at a few passages that lay that out. Exodus 23, the first chunk of that chapter deals a lot with this. It says, You must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, Do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. What's it saying? It is so easy, right? If you're one minority voice and everyone else is saying whatever it is, right? Crucify him or convict him or, or, you know, burn it down. It is so easy for you to get swayed by the crowd instead of standing up for what is right. We feel this temptation. 
Maybe it's not that dramatic. But you feel a temptation to say, what will make people happy? Particularly, you will say something that may hurt others if it increases your standing with the people that you really care about. And you'll slant the truth a little bit. Exodus 23 goes on to say, And do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. Now, this one really uh, struck me because there are plenty of passages in Scripture that talk about the need to care for the poor and how easy it is to take advantage of them. A few verses later in Exodus 23, it says this exact thing. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Scripture recognizes over and over that the poor are the easiest to be taken advantage of, to dismiss their complaints. Think about it this way. You slander a rich person. Well, they have lots of lawyers, and they'll go sue you and you know, drain you of all your money. You slander a poor person, and what can, that, what can he or she do? Nothing. They have no recourse. They have no justice. There's a stark warning in Scripture for those who take care, advantage of the poor, particularly for their own gain, because they realize the poor have no recourse. But at the same time, Scripture recognizes there can be an unhealthy pity for the poor, that you might be tempted to slant your testimony and, and twist the truth a little bit because of a good compassion for a poor person. But this is also condemned. You can imagine it this way. I think this happens all the time, actually. Let's say there's a lawsuit against a big corporation, and they've got just tons of money, and you think, well, certainly they have done something wrong. I know their hands aren't clean. And so maybe they aren't guilty for this thing that they're being sued for, but I'm sure they're guilty somewhere, and this is just pocket change for them. So I'm going to say what I think will make them pay. And look who it's going to benefit. I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing it for these poor victims, these poor people. And there's a temptation to tweak what you're going to say out of good motives, compassion. And yet, God warns about this as well. Because what does God care about? He cares about the truth. If you set up any society that is based on some sort of false testimony, like I said, it has an unsteady foundation. God cares about the truth. And it calls into question even things like, you know, the ethics of Robin Hood, <laughs> stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Just because you're trying to help those in need doesn't mean you've got free reign to do whatever you want to do to make it happen. Uh, the ends do not justify the means. I think this is a huge problem today. I think you, you probably think of all kinds of examples. I think it is perfectly reasonable to believe that there are numerous examples of systemic injustices in our world and in our society. Right? Societies are made up of people. People are sinful. People look after themselves more than others. And that will bubble up in all kinds of ways. And so on one hand, we're in danger of denying justice to the poor and the vulnerable when we don't take some of those issues seriously. But at the same time, the problem with so many solutions to this today is doing what Scripture forbids, slanted testimony, of using any means to help those that are suffering, and doing it by slanting the truth, by saying, well, they've got so much we need to take from them, instead of saying, no, what is right and what is just? God doesn't want 
justice at any cost. That's not true justice. He cares about how you get there. He cares about us telling the truth. So that's kind of the principles. Now how does this apply to us? If we, continue, if we go to Exodus 23, verse 1, you must not pass along false rumors. Rumors and gossip is a form of giving false witness. It's not, and this isn't just about how you speak, this command isn't just about how you speak about people when you're under oath, but how you speak about people in the day-to-day situation, at work, at home, with your friends. This is part of what Jesus is getting at when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Not just if you swear by something, not just offend your oath, The principle of the Bible is if you wouldn't be willing to say something under oath, then you should not say it at all. There's not a separate standard of how you speak if you're in the witness box, but you should actually live all of your life as if you are under oath. Because God hears every single thing that you say. He even hears what's running through your mind. And he holds us accountable for these things. He cares about how we speak of others. And yet, how often will we, without even thinking about it, pass along a rumor about a coworker or a neighbor or an ex? Martin Luther, who we read in the corporate reading, he comes down really hard on this, which is interesting if you know him. He's a very fiery personality and would say all kinds of things. And yet, he had a I think a very strong conviction about this. He says this, we should note that none has the right to judge and reprove a neighbor publicly, even after having seen a sin committed, unless authorized to judge and reprove. There's a very great difference between judging sin and having knowledge of sin. You may be certain that you know about a sin, but you should not judge it. I may certainly see and hear that my neighbor sins, but I have no command to tell others about this. Luther takes us to a really deep level where he says, you might even see them sin, but that doesn't mean you have to go and tell other people about it. Now, sometimes you say, well, it's not gossip if it's actually true. I'm just telling the truth. Why would Martin Luther put it so strongly like this? Well, for one, I think it fits with Jesus' words in Matthew 7, where he says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others, and the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now, this is an often misunderstood verse, but a good chunk of its meaning is, is an understanding that God has given the power of judgment to certain roles in society. Certain jurisdictions, so the civil magistrate and church leaders, parents, other authority figures have been given a God-given role to judge within their sphere of authorities. And so if you are trying to judge someone by telling others about how that person has screwed up, but not actually going through the proper channels, you might be breaking this command. You're not, you're not actually seeking justice, you're spreading rumors. Because why? Why should we be so slow to this? In fact, not do it. Because so often there's more to the story that we don't see. There's often extenuating circumstances that we might not be aware of for why that person did that thing. 
we might only be seeing half of the picture. We're not as impartial as we think we are. This is why judgment is supposed to take place within those God-ordained channels where evidence can be weighed. People are given a chance to explain themselves and speak to the charges. Counter evidence can come forth so that whatever judgment comes is fair. This isn't saying we never judge anyone. We're saying, let the people that God has called to judge, judge. And let's love our neighbors. But we're so often quick to give our judgment about all kinds of issues before a fair trial has taken place. We're so quick to pass on things about people, politicians, or neighbors that we don't like simply because we don't like them. And we're not too concerned about the truth of it. And why do we feel this pressure to do it? Well, for one, it's a great way to gain social capital. Right? Just say mean things about people, <laughs> and you can get popular with the people that don't like those people. It often makes us feel good to knock people down. And it's often not just bad rumors, but saying little things that might cause people to think of someone not quite as well as they used to. And you just justify it by saying, oh, I'm just letting you know. It's so easy to post about someone online or share a disparaging meme about a politician or to share with a coworker what you saw the unpopular employee do in the office last week or spend time complaining with your girl or guy friends about your spouse. And it can make you feel justified in your frustration with that person, but you could also be bearing false witness. Now you respond, but what if it's true? I'm not spreading lies. They, they did this thing. Are we just supposed to stay quiet about everything? Well, no. We have two channels that God gives us. One, in, per, in terms of a personal grievance, Matthew 18 gives us a model. We go through it in our orientation class where it starts with going to that person that has sinned against you and talking to them. And then there's channels of escalation so that there can be you know, a, a fair hearing out. But, but the first thing to do is someone has wronged you is to talk to them about it. Now, frankly, it's way easier just to tell others about it than to talk to the person who you think has wronged you. Matthew 18 is a great antidote to gossip because it is a really good way in figuring out, is this truly some way that someone has wronged me or is this just something that I'm mad about and want to make that person look bad because they hurt me? Or do I care about the justice involved? And in terms of other sins, public sins, scandals, you should report these things to the proper authorities. And this doesn't mean that Christians just turn a blind eye to sin right, or, or victims that are being hurt. No, we report these things to the proper authorities so a proper trial can take place, so that justice can be heard. Now, maybe you don't share your grievances right, and you don't tell anyone else about them, but God always cares about our heart. So maybe you would never say those things publicly, but in your mind, you are ruminating on the people or the things that have hurt you in the past, and you cannot forgive them. You relish and repeat in your mind over and over what that person said to you, and you play in your mind what you wish you had said to them. It is so easy to slander people in our minds and how we think about them in refusing to forgive them in our hearts. This doesn't mean you just let people off the hook for doing wrongdoing. Again, if something needs to be addressed or reported, then you do that. You don't keep rehashing it in your mind 
and have this constant trial in your mind playing. It does no good for anybody. So much. You know, this, this command is so applicable to us today because of technology. So much of social media, what you can watch on YouTube, the mainstream media, makes a living off of spreading false witness. And are you taking part in it? It is so tempting. I find myself getting sucked into this, right? You watch one YouTube video about something, and now you've got 10 more that you're, you're watching about the latest, quote, news about whatever's happening. And there's something addicting about noting the latest news, which is often gossip in disguise, about the latest scandal that you care about. I mean, this is a huge problem. This is what I think is leading to so much of the polarization in our country. Nobody wants to speak the truth in love. They want to speak hate. Everyone is so quick to judge the other person and assume the worst about the other side. And this is equally a problem on both sides, I think. No one wants to speak the truth in love. We just want to make ourselves feel superior by putting others down. And so are you participating in the slander industry by giving ear to all the latest reports about you know, what the, the liberals in New York have done or the conservatives in Alabama have done, getting so upset about it? and getting so worked up about this. I don't think our brains were made to be able to handle all the world that takes, all the evil that takes place in the world, much less even our state. Right? What good is trying to stay up with all of that doing to your soul? Or is it just getting you into these cycles of hate and getting you more worked up and more angry about everything? Again, Luther has some harsh words. Learning a bit of gossip about someone else People then spread it to every corner, relishing and delighting in the chance to stir up someone else's dirt like pigs that roll in manure and roll around and root around in it with their snouts. This is nothing else than usurping God's judgment and office. Therefore, those who venture to accuse their neighbor of such guilt assume as much authority as all emperors and rulers. For though you do not wield the sword, you use your venomous tongue to bring disgrace and harm upon your neighbor. Therefore, God forbids you to speak evil about another, even though, to your certain knowledge, that person is guilty. You see what he's saying there? We need to know our role. Are you trying to take God's place in judging all the people around you and take that gavel away from him? You're, 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 you're sinning in that. And yet you say, but what if I know that person is guilty? Where's the justice in this? Well, hopefully that justice will be discovered through the proper channels. And yet we all know our earthly justice systems are imperfect, and it is so often a dull instrument to deal with sin, and is often misses the target. But that is why, so what do we do with it then? That is why Christians must rest in a God who judges. It is no accident that the more we get rid of the justice of God, the more angry we're going to be because there are real wrongs in our world. And there's no way to deal with them except we take them into our own hands then. But to believe in a God who judges means that you can forgive that person and you can know 
that God will deal with it perfectly. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Every one of you has been wronged in some way. People have said lies about you probably. Hurt those that you love. And we can rest in knowing that God has seen that and he never forgets it. And he makes every wrong right. And it's only when you give it to him that you can get it out of your mind. You can stop ruminating it. You can stop trying to play the judge and learn to forgive and love and actually enjoy a lot more of life. And remember how Christ has treated you. Though you and I deserve to be called sinners, that is not what Christ has called us. But he rejoices in calling you brothers and sisters. And it's not because you deserve it. We don't. It's because you have looked to him in faith. And he has taken every ounce of that justice on himself so that you can be free. He has called you forgiven and righteous in his sight. And he doesn't sit up in heaven, turning over to you know, God the Father, saying, well, look at what so-and-so's doing now, you know, and, and spreading rumors about you there, even though he actually sees everything you do. But he's praying for you and loving you and interceding for you. And he has called us to model that love and forgiveness, and at the same time not letting go of the justice we seek for, and knowing God will make all things right. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us in this way that we are, all, we are all guilty of this one way or the other, God. We hold on to grudges. We pass along rumors. We participate in gossip. Lord, we're really good at justifying it. Father, help us to remember how you have treated us. You don't just sweep our sins under the rug but Christ has actually endured the hell that we deserve for them so that we can truly, rightly be called forgiven and righteous in his sight. Father, would we have that same love for our enemies, that we know that you will make all things right, that you offer that same forgiveness to them you've offered to ourselves, that that would humble us, And for those that refuse to repent, although they will have to account for every one of their actions. And it is far worse to fall into the hands of an angry and just God than anything we can do. So we pray that that would free us, that we could rest in you, and we could love even our enemies. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.